good to see you here on Pentecost Sunday. Every Sunday should be Pentecost, really, but it's good to celebrate it specially on a day like this. And uh, later this evening, we're really going to believe God for a move of His Spirit at the revival service. And I'm going to be speaking on the subject, linked to Pentecost, of course, on how to generate supernatural power in your life. Because my observation is, is that many Christians today, if not most Christians today, they live natural lives. God still breaks in here and there, but they don't live supernatural lives. We need more super about our natural lives. We need to live supernatural lives, which means that we need to generate supernatural power. That's what the day of Pentecost was all about. Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power. So in other words, he didn't want them going out, doing his will, without being clothed with power. And the day of Pentecost was the outpouring of the Spirit and a supernatural. Super means on top of. Supernatural. They were clothed. Something came upon them on their natural lives that was supernatural. And it allowed them within a few hours to bring 5,000 souls to Christ. God wants us to be supernatural. And tonight I'm going to explain one of the most important keys, right, right from Pentecost, of how you can revolutionize. And I mean this. I'm not just like bigging it up. Uh, I think you know me by now. The key, one of the keys I'm going to give you tonight will revolutionize your life with power. So that's tonight at the revival service. But today, here at the five, <clears throat> welcome to all those joining us uh, online and uh, watching later on in the week. We are going through the book of James. I've said it last few weeks. It's important to study God's Word as He gave it to us. He, 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 he gave it to us in different styles, in different books, and in letters. And so it's great to have prophetic preaching. It's great to have topical preaching, what we call systematic preaching, what the Bible says about prayer, what the Bible says about Israel. That's systematic teaching or theology. But also it's important that we go to God's Word as it's been given to us. If I wrote you a letter, I wouldn't expect you to leap to a verse in the middle or, or to section in the middle, pull it out, ignore the rest. You'll probably misunderstand what I'm saying. If I wrote you an important letter, I'd expect you to begin at the beginning and end at the end. God has given us the letter of James. And so God will do a work in our lives as we study it week by week that won't be done through other forms of teaching. Thank God for prophetic preaching because it brings something other forms of preaching doesn't. Thank God for topical preaching, but also the preaching of the Word as we come to James, we're building. And so we're in James chapter 1, and um, we have come to verse 17. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be kind, a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. We said that the book of James is all about how to deal with trials in life, and how to be an overcomer, and how to get the victory. Right in the first chapter, and uh, if, if, if you're here for the first time, you might want to just look at some of the verses preceding what we've read. We see that James says, count it all joy or consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the reason being, this is how God matures us, and this is how God gets a testimony through us, how we deal with trials. And he says, but be patient or have endurance and let the trial have its perfect work so you will be complete, mature that is, lacking nothing. Now, when you face a trial, the thing to remember is that God has a purpose in it. I mean, even when Job faced that horrendous trial and the devil brought that trial, but God had his purpose in it. And Job was doubly blessed by the end of the trial than he was at the beginning. Whatever you're facing, God has a purpose in it. And what God is looking for is how you respond to the test and how you deal with the trial. That's what God's looking for. Have you ever sought God for something in prayer? And, and it's like, God, I need a breakthrough, or I need provision, or I need this, or I need that, and I need it now. And God doesn't give it to you now. In fact, you're like, God, when will I get my breakthrough? When will this change? And it's like, why is God taking so long? Well, this is what James is saying. He's saying, be patient. Why? God will take as long as he wants to get what he wants done in your life. You see, God can do anything at any time. He can answer your prayers in a, in a moment. Why doesn't he? Because he has got a greater purpose. The greatest glory that God gets on earth is the maturing of his people. The greatest example, of course, is Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham and said, you're going to have a miracle son through Sarah, your wife, Isaac. But Isaac didn't come along nine months later. In fact, 50 years later, Isaac still hadn't come along. Why? Why? Because God was doing something in Abraham that was incredible. And during that time of waiting and dealing with the trial, Abraham made his mistakes. He had his Ishmael. Twice he gave up his wife as his sister, scared that he would be killed for her. But in the end, he had his Isaac. And when his Isaac came, he was strong in faith and trust with God. And so James says, look, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. That's because the first time when we face a trial, often what can happen is we panic. Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to sort this out? I don't have the money. I don't have the situation. I can't see the way forward. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And you stay up all night worrying. And the reason that we often worry is we don't know what to do. 
We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Or maybe we shouldn't say anything. Or maybe we shouldn't do anything. And we become paralyzed. We don't know what to do. Well, God says, ask for wisdom and you will get it. And he's saying, and don't doubt me. Because when you doubt, when you ask for wisdom and you doubt, you're like, as he said, a person who is driven by the winds and the waves of the sea. You are all over the place. You're double-minded, James says, or double-souled. I mentioned to you a few weeks later that that that's what happens. I know when I'm double-minded because one moment I've got the victory. I'm believing you. I'm trusting you. I'm walking with you in the you Father. I'm walking with you. Then the next moment, oh, where's God? It's all going wrong. I'm going to have to sort this out myself. And just double-minded. One moment you're in faith and you're just trusting the Father. The next moment you're panicking. Then you're back trusting the Father. The next moment you you pray through in at night before you sleep, and you've got the peace. You wake up in the morning and you've lost your peace. You ever been there? And God understands that, and God is merciful. But what he wants us to do is say, Father, I need wisdom in this situation, and trust that it will come. And sometimes God will drop that wisdom into your heart or your mind, and sometimes he won't. Sometimes you'll be outside the door of that interview or that meeting, and you're going, you still haven't given me the wisdom, God. You still haven't given me the wisdom. Don't doubt. You'll get it at the point you need it. And so having said these things, He then uses the examples of the rich man and the poor man. And he says that the poor person is is, is to be uh, recognized and exalted because that poor person has got no choice but to believe God and trust God. Whereas the rich man has to humble themselves because they've got so much earthly resources, the danger of a rich person is that he doesn't need God. He's got booper. He's got finances. He he can go to all these things before God. The poor person's just got to trust God. And God says, it's better to be poor and trust me than to be rich and don't trust me. What a great example. But then after that, we came to verse 13 and we said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt one another. The word test in James And the word tempt in James are the same word in the Greek. So whenever you read test, you could read tempt. Whenever you read tempt, you can read test. That's why you have to decide which is the best word. And in verse uh, 13, so in verse 12 where it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation in some of our versions, it's the wrong word. It should be test. But where it says no one says tempted by God, well, that's correct. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that often when we face a trial, one of the first things we can do is start blaming God. Why has this happened to me? Why has this person treated me in this way? Why am I facing this situation? Why did what I planned not come to... Why God? And we can begin to have problems and we can begin to blame God and say, you've put me in this mess, God, and, uh, and, and, and begin to sort of... Blame God for the test. I mean, look at Job's wife. Job's wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job said, I don't blame God. You see, it was the devil that did those things to Job, wasn't it? If you read chapter 1. God allowed it. And God said, this much you can do, devil, but you can't have his life. Know this, that whatever you face in life, whatever comes your way, God knows the boundaries of it. 
Even when you face it, if you think, I can't cope with this, it's all gone mad, know that God still sets the boundaries. It doesn't come from God, but He sets the boundaries and He will use it for His glory. You hear what I'm saying? And so Job, which is in James chapter 5, is a great picture of this. Because God didn't make Job sick. God didn't take his children. God didn't take his wealth. The devil did. But God said, I'll allow this for my purposes. And God's purposes, in the end, were for good. So never, 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 never forget that God is the Lord of everything that comes your way. Consider it all joy. You might not feel it all joy. But consider it all joy because God is Lord of everything you face. And what the devil meant for good, uh, uh, Joseph said, what the devil meant for bad, sorry, God meant for good. Very important. And when we come to where I started today, every good, well, verse 16, do not be deceived, my my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. This is what... James is trying to say, he's saying, look, when you're facing difficulties, obstacles, don't doubt God's goodness. That's what he's saying in that verse. He's saying, don't ever doubt God's goodness. I said last week that within every trial, there is a, every trial carries with it a temptation. You say, well, what's that? The temptation not to do it God's way. Every test, within it there is a temptation. And the temptation is not to trust God. The temptation can be to blame God. The temptation can be to turn your back on God. So in every test and trial, we should never ever do it our own way. But we should, and we should always, always, always say, God is good. Because at the end of the trial, remember, every trial and test is only for a season. Only for a season. God knows the beginning, and He also knows the end. And every good gift and every perfect gift from above comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Even when it's dark, God is still shining. Even when all hell is breaking loose, God is still the blesser. And this is one of the tests in every test, to believe that God is good. And isn't this one of the biggest problems, not just in the church, but outside the church? Uh, One of the biggest questions that people ask, they say, I can't believe in God. Why? Look at all the evil in the world. How can you expect me to believe in a God of love with all the evil that's in the world? You see, they're blaming God for the evil in the world. Or something, or something has happened in their family. And they say, well, you asked me to believe in a good God when my nephew, a young man, died of cancer. You're asking me to believe in a good God? And so this verse and what James is saying here is very relevant, not just to our lives, but also to one of the big things in the world today, blaming God for evil. But here in this verse, it's saying, look, God does not bring evil on anyone. God is good, and he never changes his goodness, ever. 
Now, there's many reasons for all the evil in the world. The most important reason for evil in the world, if you want to know what all the, where all the evil comes in the world, take a look in the mirror. Human beings have caused all the evil in the world. Right back when everything was good, when God created the world and put Adam and Eve in it, before the fall, what did he say? And it was, did he say that after the fall? No, why? Because it wasn't good. And who messed up this world? Adam and Eve. You and me. We all sinned in Adam. Humanity brought sin, sickness, brokenness, evil, war into this world. When we fell, the whole of God's creation fell with us. But thank God, he sent his son to begin to reverse all that. And then, of course, there's a devil who goes like a roaring lion trying to devour who he wants. He's out there to destroy. He's a thief, a destroyer. And so it's not God. Now, God is big enough that he can use the evil of people for ultimate good. The greatest example is the greatest sinful act of man that ever took place. That they would take God's only son, beat him, wound him, stick him on a cross and crucify him. That was the worst act of sin that history has ever known. There was no more act of evil than crucifying God's son. And yet in that act of evil, when the devil was thought he'd triumphed, God was actually going to work the greatest good. That's why the cross is so amazing. Because the worst thing that Satan could do, God turned to the salvation of humanity. So whatever we have faced in our lives, or are facing right now, or will face, we have to recognize that whatever adversity comes our way, God is good. And Job did not curse God and die. Because he knew that God was good. And, and, and he had this understanding of God's goodness. He said, though he slay me, I'll still trust him. You see, he had faith in the goodness of God. And the picture here is that, that he's the father of lights with whom no variation or shadow of turning. The picture, one of the pictures here is of a sundial. And the sundial casts a shadow as the sun moves around the day. But at high noon, there is no shadow of turning at all. You know that song, there's no shadow of turning with thee, great is thy faithfulness. No shadow of turning with thee. Why? Because God is always at high noon. He's always at his fullest. He's always at his best. And so when we're going through a trial, the temptation is to think that God has cast a shadow. No, trust his goodness. And you'll see that when the trial ends, the reward, the crown of life that we spoke about in verse 12, which is for those that endure testing, but when they've been approved, they will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him, verse 12. You see, when a test comes, it shows how much you love God. Because we can all sing God's praise when everything is going marvelously and wonderful. We've got goosebumps on goosebumps. We've got angels visiting us. We've got breakthroughs left, right, and center. Everybody can sing God's praise. Everybody loves God. But the question is, 
when it gets a bit tough, do you still love him? It'll show whether you do or not. And there's many Christians that aren't here in this building today because they doubt God's goodness. Because they blame God for what happened to them. And because when that test came, their relationship with God, when that storm came, they'd been building their house on the sand. They'd been hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. And when the storm came, everything fell apart because they hadn't grown in their love of God or their knowledge that he's Lord of the trial. And in verse 18, having said, don't doubt his goodness, because his goodness will come through at the end of the trial. It says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. In other words, what James is saying is this, look, he that began a good work in you will finish it. After all, James is saying, didn't he cause you to be born again? He, out of his will, invaded your life, rescued you from sin and Satan, and made you into a new creation, born again, and gave you the gift of eternal life. That is the greatest gift that God could ever give. Do you know what I'm saying? The greatest gift that God could ever give anyone is eternal life life. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What does it profit if you have everything in this world and then die and lose your soul? You see, the Father of lights, the, the one that gives us good gifts, he gave us the greatest gift. He gave us, who are here today, eternal life. So in other words, what he's saying is if God has given you eternal life, don't you think he can look after your temporal life? Temporal meaning earthly. Don't you think that if he gave you the greatest gift in the world, that even if you're going through a difficulty, he'll bring you through what he started, he will finish. This is encouragement in the midst of tests and trials. And then in verse 19, we get this wonderful piece of practical advice. So then, my beloved brethren... Let every person be swift to hear. Say, swift to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. I tell you what, if we just stopped now and built our lives on those three commandments, our lives would be changed beyond recognition. Changed beyond recognition. And as we go through James... These three commands, be quick to hear, be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, are going to be unpackaged in James. As we go further on, we'll hear about hearing the word and doing the word. We read a little bit about that. We will hear about, about, not, about not using the wisdom of the earth, which is anger and manipulation. And we will, we will hear about the mouth and the importance of the tongue. So we'll unpackage these with James. But right now, let's just dwell on them for a little. Where it says swift to hear, in the Greek, the word really means rapidly pursuing. Hurry up. We could, we could translate it, if you like. Hurry up and listen. Hurry up and listen. 
in your lives. Hurry up and listen. Run to listen. But when it says slow to speak, the word is talking about hesitate, delay, think twice before speaking. But in a lot of people's lives, it's the reverse. We're very slow to hear, but very quick to speak. I don't know about you, but I notice that with a lot of people that I know, they want to talk all the time, but they don't want to listen. Have you ever been in a place where it's very hard to get a word in edgeways? I'm not just talking about a motor mouth who likes to talk. I'm talking about someone that genuinely doesn't want to listen. Or if you say something or give them something, they sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then it's back to what they want to say. This is a problem in today's world. People are so opinionated. I mean, I like Facebook. I'm on Facebook. But people are always spouting forth on Facebook their opinions on this, that, and the other. And sometimes it's not educated opinions. But hey, they've got Facebook. That's their platform. Everybody can now listen to me and my posts and everything that I want to say about the world. Quick to speak. Quick to put forward. But how many people are slow, or sorry, quick to listen? Hurry up and listen. I think this is one of the best advice that we can give. Listen. Listen. Listen to what's being said. Listen what's going on. And most of, all, most of all, hurry up and listen to God. Listen to his word. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other ear. When God speaks to you through a sermon or through the daily reading of his word or through a Christian book, dwell on it. Dwell on it. Many of you that know me know that I have a black prophetic book, uh, notebook, Well, when I hear from God in all the various forms he can speak through other people, through when I really hear God speak to me, I am quick to listen. Why? Because I write it down. Quick to listen, quick to hear what God is saying, what the word is saying. Wanting to dwell, wanting to get light and revelation in our hearts. And When you're in a trial, remember, everything about James is about trials. So we have to keep the context. One of the problems is when difficulties come, we can quickly speak and start blaming people. When we feel that somebody has wronged us, we can be very quick to tell other people about how we've been treated. Quick to speak. Let me tell you what that person did did for me or do you know what that person said or do and we're quick to speak and what James is saying is don't be quick to speak because when you're quick to speak you're quick to judge and one of the biggest mistakes I know I've made it enough times in my life is to judge your situation or come to a conclusion about a situation or a person too early too early You've looked at it, you've you've, you've put it through your mind, you haven't asked for God's wisdom or perspective, you've made your snap judgment, and you begin to speak. You begin to speak. Whereas God says, be quick to listen, wait, hesitate, delay speaking. 
And often speaking, it says, um, slow to speak, slow to anger. And speaking and anger are often linked together. And anger can often provoke hasty speech, can't it? I mean, how many of you have said something when you were angry? And let's face it, it didn't help. Because sometimes you do, don't you? Sometimes you want to confront that person with a few home truths that you've come to a conclusion to too early. You want to go in, you want to sort it out. It's confrontation time. I'm going to sort this thing out. I'm going to sort it out now. Wait a second. Wait a second. Be slow to speak. And especially if you're in an agitated state of anger, don't send the text. Don't send the email. Have you ever been there? I've been there. I'm writing that email and I am annoyed and I'm going to sort this person out and I'm going to tell them because it's easier by email. Probably wouldn't do it face to face. A bit risky face to face. But I'm on my email. No one's around and I'm going to send that email and then send. And you sent it and then it's like, hmm. And you get, you get it back up. What did, I, what did I just send? Oh, all right. Okay. All right. How do you get recall again? Recall. And do you know the thing about recall? It doesn't work. But you know the even, the more, the even more um, humiliating thing about recall is you send the email you didn't want to send, telling them off, whatever. Then you press recall it doesn't come back, and not only do they know you've sent the email, they know you've tried to get it back. <laughs> How humiliating. So you can't even like, you couldn't even say, well, I meant it. You can't even dig your heels in, because they know you tried to get it back. But I have learned, actually, never to send an email in reaction to something that has really emotionally affected me. Never, not to do that. Sometimes I've been there when I've written an email and I've like, just leave it till the morning. Leave it till the morning. And then when I get up in the morning, I come to it and I go, thank God I didn't send it. Or that sentence that, and I, and I thank God I didn't send it. Why? Because I'm not as angry as I was. I'm not as emotional as I was. This isn't me suppressing my anger. This is just the fact that in the heat of the moment, be slow to speak. Do you know I have regretted speaking too quick out of anger, but I have never regret, regretted holding my tongue for a later moment. Never regretted that. Never. Never. Because I've found that when I've been slow to speak and slow to anger or slowed down my anger and thought I'm going to deal with this in a couple of days, does it really need to be dealt now? That I can stop and think, ask for wisdom, how should I properly and godly deal with this situation? I mean, this advice is not saying that you shouldn't speak. This isn't saying you should keep your mouth shut at all times. It's saying you should be slow to speak. That when, when, you're, ready to, when you're ready to speak, that you've gone through the right process and now you're ready to share, and don't speak out of anger 
There is a thing as righteous anger, but most of the time we don't have it. We have the anger without the righteousness. So don't fool yourself and call it righteous anger. There's very few people that actually speak with righteous anger. It's righteous because it's godly and not self-centered. And in fact, righteous anger is for the benefit of the people with whom they're receiving the anger. When Jesus has righteous anger, it's usually his last gasp attempt to reach somebody. Okay? So, therefore... Sorry, verse 20. For the wrath or anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, anger does not work out, does not produce what God's will is. And so often we are tempted in a trial to lash out at people. Because a trial could be a person. How many have ever had a trial in their life and it was a person? About eight of us. Well, those of you that kept your hands down, I prophesy. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Look at it all. (gasps) I'm already in a trial. God gives a trial, not you. You've all been in situations where you've had that person. And it's a person that's the trial. But how do you deal with that situation or that person? Do you know what? Anger will never solve it. In fact, it will make it worse. You see, one of the secrets of how to deal with the trial that we're seeing here in James is that we do not go the devil's way in the trial. Because whenever you face a trial, whether it's a person, a situation, and I'm not talking about, I've said this last week, and I want to say it again, I'm not all talking about some huge, massive trial that's a life-threatening trial or don't think Bruce is preaching and tomorrow morning we'll go to the bank and find that I'm 5,000 pounds in debt. This can be, the trial can be tiny. The test can be a little thing. The test can be how you treat that person that pushes in in the bus queue. So, so, this, and, and so the test can be just a few moments. Just how you treat somebody. Even you don't know. And God's looking to grow you. He's looking for the response He's looking for how you will deal with daily tests and trials. Yes, there are, sometimes there are huge, big trials that we've gone through, and we've all been through things like that. And, and, and I said, uh, and I'll say it again, the tests and trials that some of us have been through, we'd never want to go through again in our lives. However, on reflection, we're glad we went through them once because of what it's made us into and because what happened afterwards. You hear what I'm saying? I'd never go through some of the trials I've gone before. Never in a million years would I ever want to face some of the things I've faced. But at the same time, it's made me who I am today. And I wouldn't remove them. Does that sound weird? Not to those of us that have been through them. And in the trial, the temptation is always to do it man's way. And man's way is often out of anger. And what is anger? Anger, often, nearly all of the time, anger is a blocked goal. It's something you want. You want to be treated in a certain manner or you want something to happen. And you perceive that somebody is blocking it. And when that block comes and that frustration of what you want to see or how you want to be treated or what you think is right, 
then all of a sudden that frustration can boil up inside and start to be anger. And out of that anger, whether it's, you know, somebody blowing a fuse and shouting or the, or the, or, 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 or the even worse anger, when somebody buries it and lets it simmer, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Ooh, that's an angry person. I'd rather have someone fly off the hook than think, okay, I'm going to get you. And oh no, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm having flashbacks. Oh, I'm having flashbacks. Where was I? Anger's a block goal. And what tends to happen when you, when you come out of anger is you begin to work, and, and James will speak about this later, you begin to work with soulish wisdom. How I'm going to make this work. And you turn from God to your own devices. I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to stick the knife in. I'm going to gossip about the person. I'm going to do something to do this. When really, that's the point when we go to God and say, I'm bringing this to you, Lord. I'm going to do it your way. And God's way is normally the opposite of human way. I mean, you can skip ahead if you want and find the passage on wisdom but in James. But God's wisdom is, first of all, peaceable. Peaceable. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, which also means endurance. One of the greatest, one of the greatest things we can learn is patient endurance. Patient endurance. Not flying off the handle. Not being quick, but being slow. God will tell us the times to speak out, the times to do, but we should have inside ourselves a default patience, endurance. That person's getting on my nerves. I'm going to just tell them that straight away. No. No, my default setting is patience. If God wants to give me wisdom or tell me to do something, that's fine, but my default set, my default set is peaceable, wisdom. And one of the Exciting things that you can do in the Bible is see how people in the Bible faced their trials, their mistakes. Because in the Bible, all these men and women, they faced their tests and trials. And some of them, as R.T. Kendall says, dignified the trial. But some of them in the trial, the trial turned into a temptation and they took the temptation which was in their own desires and flesh to go away and, the tri- and they failed the test. I mean, you, you just go through and look at Samson. Samson had tests and he passed them and then he had that woman, Delilah, and she tested him and tested him. But after a while, the test turned into a temptation and he went the way of temptation. Think of Joseph and how many temptations he had in all those trials God had said he was going to be bowed down to by all his family and he ended up in a slave pit he should have blamed God and then when he ended up in Potiphar's house he began to rise and rise until he was in charge of all his master's house and then came that temptation not only could he have had Potiphar's was he ruling Potiphar's house he could have had Potiphar's wife there is the temptation And what did he do? He resisted the temptation. He went God's way. He didn't commit adultery. And what happened? For going God's way, he ended up in prison. Another temptation to 
say, curse God, all these things. And, and, and Joseph is such a beautiful picture of someone that went through tests and never allowed the test to turn into a temptation. I mean, look at Abraham again, the perfect thing. He was tested. He had to be patient and wait a long time for that son. And during the time, he lost patience. If I can put it this way, he was slow to anger at God. I mean, fast to anger at God. He lost patience and Ishmael was born. He lost patience that God would rescue him and he gave his wife up and said, she's my sister. He lost patience during that trial. There's a test in that trial. There's a test, but it can turn into a temptation. And at that point, you know, shall I go God's way and do it God's way or shall I do it a different way? And quite frankly, many, many Christians aren't even aware of what I'm teaching you in, this, in James. We're only in James 1. They're not aware. And what's happening is many Christians are going through little tests, big tests, little tests, and they're failing them all. Because when the tests come, they blame God, blame others. They want to hurry up the test. They want to sort the test out quickly. So without reference to God, they use wisdom that's of man and not wisdom of God. They don't pray. They, don't, they just try and get, they, they just use the same techniques that the world does. This is one of the dangers of when you see people, I mentioned this last week as well. You see great men and women of God fall, you know. Pastors and leaders of great ministries, and they fall, and you think, how on earth could somebody with such a great ministry fall? Well, what happened was, during the test, they took the easy way out. The test turned into a temptation. Instead of going God's way, they decided that they would cheat their tax. Why? Because it was a quick fix at the time. We need money for this. We need money for that. Money's not coming in for the building fund. What shall we do? Let's divert. Let's do something. It doesn't matter why. We've got to get through this trial. We've got to get through this test. And what they do is instead of going God's way, they try a shortcut by their own means to end the test of the trial. And in the end, it causes more harm than if they just trusted God. Sometimes we've got to have that tenacity that says, though he slay me, I'll still trust him. In other words, do you know what? I'm going to go God's way. As best as I know how, I'm going to ask for wisdom, which means he's going to give me the know-how, whenever, however, even at the moment I need it. And I'm going to go God's way, the best way I know how. And do you know what? If I suffer for it, may I suffer for it. I think David must have, I mean, uh, I think um, Joseph must have done that a lot. To make your mind set up that you're going to do it God's way. You're going to ask for wisdom. You're going to be quick to hear. Slow to put things in motion with your mouth. Slow to let that anger out. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You do anything out of anger or bitterness, which is the same thing. You do anything out of anger or bitterness, I guarantee it will fail you. And cause more trouble. More trouble. Tell you what, I bet Abraham wished he'd never had Ishmael. Later on, when he had to get, send him away and all that, I bet he'd wished he'd never had, bet he wished he'd never had Ishmael. All these things that 
You see in the Bible when they, I bet David wished that he'd never taken Bathsheba. Never met. I bet he wished he'd never even got into that place. I bet he wished he'd never done that. I bet he'd wished he'd never gone the human fleshly way. Because when you go that way, that's where the trouble starts. When we're speaking about tests and trials that we face, we're not talking about the stuff that we, we cause for ourselves by our own sinful temptations. You know, I don't know about you, but when I look at of all the things I've gone through in my life, the worst things were actually generated by me. The things that I need healing from, even today, and thank God I'm being healed. But the things I still need, God's touch and help and healing, they're not the tests and trials that just I faced. It's where I got into temptation, did it my own way, went my way, not God's way, tried to shut court, shut, shortcut the trial. And those things caused more pain and ultimate suffering than anything that went my way externally. Because you, if, you, if you stand with God, you can face anything that comes your way and you'll still have your peace. But when you shortcut the trial, when you do it by anger or bitterness, or when you blame God and say, well, if this is the way you're going to treat me, God, then I'm going to have myself a party. And that's why some Christians backslide because they feel that God has let them down or the church has let them down. And so they go, right, huh, you're all hypocrites in the church. Well, that, that's an accusation against God because the church is God's body. You're all hypocrites in the church. So I'm going to go out, leave the church and party and do whatever I want and sin and everything like that. You've, you've, you've shortcut the trial. You, you've, you've let anger come out, which doesn't work the righteousness of God. You've blamed God, the very thing we've said, don't blame God. And now... You've been tempted to go and sin, and you're blaming God for going out and backsliding. It happens. Some of us have been there. Some of us have been offended. Some of us have been offended by this church, that person, God himself. And we've said, right, well, if that's the way it is, God, I don't want to know. And we've gone off, haven't we? And what we went into was a million times worse than what we were facing right there and that God would have helped us through. We shortcut the trial and moved into the flesh and the pain because the wages of sin is death. We looked at that in verse 14, 15, 16. One is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. What desires? The desires that aren't in line with God and enticed. When desire conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift is from God. You see how it is? The blaming of God and the things that God does and the enticement to go away for God. And this comes back in verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. and Receive with meekness the imparted, that's the word, implanted's fine, but imparted word which is able to save your souls. What does this mean? Well, when we're talking about being quick to listen, we have to listen, 
But we have to get ourselves in a place where we can hear God's word purer and purer every day. And what can happen, in, and God will help us with this. And God give us wisdom. He'll give us wisdom wherever we are if we ask for it, to hear his voice clearer. Because the danger is, is that we hear God through a distorted mindset. So the amount of times over the 20-odd years I've been at Kensington Temple, you've had Christians fall out with Christians. And both of them, they've fallen out, and both of them believe that God is on their side and that the other person has to repent, but they have nothing to repent of. God is my witness. Oh, it's a, I've been in those conversations. God is my witness. I, I, I have done nothing wrong. And you speak to the other one. God is my witness. I have done nothing wrong. And they can't hear God because their hearing is distorted by their own self-righteousness. God we don't want to be looking at the tiny specks in other people's lives through a big plank in our own. Ah, oh, look at your speck. Look at your speck. You're out of order. You need to repent. You know, the way you spoke to me. We've got a plank this big sticking out of our eye. And we can't even see it. The biggest danger in our lives are our own blind spots. You say, I don't have a blind spot. Exactly. You would say that. Because you can never see your own blind spot. That's why you've got to have people around you that you trust. That when they say, you've got a blind spot here. And you can't see it. So your initial reaction is to say, no, I haven't. Wait a second. I've found that, that I don't know, I'm making this. 90% of the time when you point somebody's blind spot out, they don't recognize it, well, of course, but they don't want to listen. They think, they think you're saying it out of a bad motivation. So when you hold someone, we are in, let me just say that we are in a generation that is not accountable. This generation, the British church, is not accountable and does not understand relationships of accountability. Because when true spiritual accountability takes place, it is rejected as manipulation. The greatest judgment on Great Britain today is not the potential for gay marriage. The greatest judgment on Great Britain today is the church, you and me. We are the judgment on this nation. We're going around, oh, isn't this terrible, this and terrible. You're the judgment. Because a nation is judged by a backslidden church. That operates by, we, we are the judgment. I'm included, I'm going to God saying, my God, I'm the judgment. Instead of pronouncing judgment on the nation, which is, you don't have to pronounce it, it's clear as crystal. Oh, this nation's backslidden and Europe, da, 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 this, that and the other. We're the judgment. Because in other nations of the world, the church is the blessing. So what we're talking about and facing things like daily life, it's not just for us. It's for them. Because until the church becomes the blessing instead of the judgment, because I tell you what, the harvest is ripe. You think about that. I don't know, maybe that's a bit heavy. But it's true. The greatest judgment on Europe today is the church. We are the judgment. But where God's wrath is revealed, 
the gospel flourishes. And it's the gospel that will turn God's wrath to mercy. So as we begin to be gospel and share gospel, instead of us being the judgment to the nation as the church, we become the salvation of the nation through Christ. Because the only thing that turns God's judgment is the gospel, the blood of Christ. So when the church begins to share the gospel in Pentecostal power, talk about that tonight, because remember, and on this I close, Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Amazing. He didn't even want them to share the gospel without the power. But once the gospel, remember, a gospel that's not shared is no gospel at all. The gospel has no power unless it's shared. But when it is shared, it turns the judgment of God into mercy. Although we are the judgment to this nation, I do believe that there's more mercy and grace for the church and that God is working in the church to get a new breed of people, people that are going to live like James. R.T. Kendall says, there will be no revival until people begin to not just hear the message of James, but to do the message of James. And next five o'clock service, that's where we're going to move into. Be hearers of the, be doers of the word as well as hearers. A great secret to successful living. God bless you.